0: Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live.
0: From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made
1: out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to Unsavory, where true crime meets food. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah. And I'm Becca. And you're listening to Unsavory. Sometimes doing this podcast is so cool. We tell these stories that have some sort of element of true crime and food, but it is always important to remember that there are real people at the heart of these stories. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to start off by sharing a listener comment that we got on one of our episodes, The Boston Molassacre. Do you want to read it, Becca? Yeah, of course. So this was sent to us by KM
0: Celeste on Instagram, and she posted a comment on one of our posts about the molasker, and this is what it says. Fun fact, about 10 years ago, we were visiting my great aunt and my great uncle, who we knew pretty well, but mostly from visiting my grandparents. Out of the blue, my great uncle mentioned for me to follow him. He leads me into their bedroom and shows me one framed photograph he had on his dresser. He stated, that's my real father. I looked at him, clearly lost by the statement. His real father, or biological father really, was killed in the molasses spill when my great uncle was just a child. And my great uncle kept that one photograph framed on his dresser until the day he died. After he told me about it, I did some research, and sure enough, his father's name is listed among the victims of the molasses spill. Unbelievable. But that's how I learned about the great molasses flood of 1919.
1: That is such an interesting connection. And thank you so much to this listener for sharing their story. I think that's one of my favorite episodes still and Mm -hmm. probably one of the worst ways to go in terms Uh, of, yeah. No, for sure.
0: And I mean, I hope that we did the story justice. And again, yeah, thank you so much, KM Celeste. It was so interesting. And as you said, it's like so important to remember that we are talking about real people here and some of those people may even be listening. For sure.
1: Okay. So today's episode, I think it's so freaking good. We are talking all about the fascinating, mildly grotesque, and sometimes deadly world of eating competitions. And it's wilder than I ever imagined. Ooh, So excited. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I actually, I had such a blast researching this one and I'm so excited to tell you about it. Are you ready? Yep. Let's do it the information in this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a physician or registered dietitian in your area. If you have a history of disordered eating, be advised that nutrition details will be discussed and take the steps you need to protect your recovery journey. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes on our website, unsavorypodcast.com. This podcast may contain coarse language, mature subject matter, and content of a violent or disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produce podcast if you'd like to donate to the podcast you can sign up as a donor through the patreon link in our bio if you could rate review follow and share our show with your true crime and food loving friends that would really help us out and we will be forever grateful ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue
0: nile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments
1: Shout out to my sources, primarily a 2019 documentary called The Good, the Bad, and the Hungry, directed by Nicole Lucas-Hames, a journal article called Competitive Speed Eating Truth and Consequences by Levine, Spencer, Alavi, and Metz, and of course, the Major League Eating website. All of these references and many more are linked in the show notes on our website, as always. So, competitive eating is a divisive sport. And yes, many actually consider it a sport. On one hand, it's a competition with a dedicated fan base, a professional league, world records, over 100 annual international competitions, cash prizes, and corporate sponsorships. And it does require a combination of natural ability and trained skill. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a sport to me. It does. And on the other hand... Eating is not an athletic skill. It's a basic human function. And when turned into a competition, it can seem excessive, wasteful, and honestly, it's kind of nauseating to watch. The competitors look intensely uncomfortable while competing, often appearing like they're physically in pain. Some have described competitive eating as a self-destructive behavior that could even be considered a form of self-abuse. And if you're someone who cares about food insecurity and food waste, it can feel almost morally wrong to watch people shoving extreme amounts of food into their face Mm -hmm. without even taking a second to savor the flavor. Okay. This is actually, this is exactly how I feel about,
0: you know, those rage rooms Mm -hmm. where people go and they smash perfectly good, like furniture and dishes and things like that. Like it seems just so wasteful and that's
1: kind of the vibe I'm getting right now Makes me cringe a bit. Totally. But yeah, I completely agree. Those rooms are so wasteful and it kind of feels similar. But at least those rage rooms are probably cathartic. And when you're done, you feel maybe a sense of calm. So you got something out of it, almost like a therapy. But I feel like after an eating competition, the participants probably just feel awful. Plus, it's a safety issue, with the American Medical Association recognizing competitive speed eating as an unhealthy practice with potentially adverse consequences. So people have mixed feelings, and honestly, I have mixed feelings, but I can confidently say that there is much more to competitive eating than what meets CI. Competitive eating isn't exactly something that's been popular throughout history. As we know from some of our previous episodes, there have been many periods throughout time and even today, where food isn't exactly something that could be wasted. For centuries and centuries of human existence, feasting on food has been something experienced by only the very wealthy. I actually saw this TikTok. This just made me think of it. It TikTok the other day, and it was this young guy saying, can you imagine how rich you would have had to be to listen to music while having your breakfast 200 years ago? Did you see that one?
0: No. It's
1: just such a cute little, like, it's a such food for thought. Makes you realize how lucky we are to be able to, like, feast and eat whatever we want and even listen to music while we eat.
0: Yeah. No, I listen to music all the time.
1: I know. You would have (laughs) had to hire, like, a private orchestra. To follow me around on my walks. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That would be nice. (laughs) Yeah. So the earliest documented mention of any sort of food competition is from a 13th century Norse anthology called Prose Edda in which Norse god Loki challenges his servant Logi to an eating contest, I'm pretty sure he loses. After that, we jump all the way up to the 17th century, when a man named Nicholas Wood, aka the Great Eater of Kent, was known for gobbling up mass amounts of food in one sitting, such as 60 eggs, a lamb shank, and multiple pies. His bottomless stomach gained a reputation, and he drew crowds at local fairs, eventually turning his eating into a competition by inviting... People to challenge him. His career was allegedly cut short when he ate a lamb shoulder bone and all and lost all of his teeth. Wait,
0: so did he lose all of his teeth like during the actual competition?
1: That's what the legend says.
0: <laughs> That's some pretty serious dedication.
1: Yeah. Well, it's all legend, but it, it does make me wonder if he had like some sort of condition that caused extreme hunger. Anyways, it wasn't until the mid-19th century that the Industrial Revolution started to change how we view food. Technologies like refrigeration, canning, and other processing techniques improved the quantity of food available in North America. Other sorts of food and agricultural competitions started popping up across America, like the best local crops, best pies, and eventually pie-eating contests. The first recorded pie-eating contest took place in 1878 in Toronto. Ah, oh, no way. Represent. I know. <laughs> Represent. It was organized as a charity fundraising event and won by Albert Pittington, although it's not known how many pies he ate. By 1900, pie-eating contests were quite popular all over America, traditionally at county fairs. But competitive eating wouldn't start to morph into the sport that it is today until the 1900s. In 1916, a man named Nathan Handwerker opened up a small Coney Island hot dog stand called Nathan's Famous and started hosting his own hot dog eating contest every 4th of July. It's said that the first ever competition was actually between four immigrants that decided to join the contest to see who was the most patriotic. According to the legend, the Irish immigrant was victorious and he ate a total of 13 hot dogs, buns included. The hot dog eating contest would continue every year, but it was quite small and attended by mostly locals. I wonder if uh, this Nathan gentleman made them pay for all the hot dogs they're eating.
0: It'd be a pretty smart business move on his part.
1: (laughs) It would have been. I actually don't know if they have to pay for the dogs that they eat, but starting this hot dog competition was a very smart business move regardless. So Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest remained relatively unknown until 1972, when two public relations agents, Morty Matz and Max Rosen, took over operations and marketing for the hot dog contest. They hired a young graduate named George Shea and tasked him with taking Nathan's competition and transforming it from a fun community event into a national sensation. By the mid-1990s, George and his brother Richard Shea had increased the contest's attendance from hundreds to thousands, and other restaurants started to jump on the trend. The Shea brothers seized this opportunity and founded the International Federation of Competitive Eating, which has since been renamed Major League Eating. Major League Eating hosts between 80 and 100 competitions a year, featuring some very interesting food competitions all involving eating as much of a certain food as possible within a specified time frame. So some of my favorites included fried asparagus, mayonnaise, tiramisu, pepperoni rolls, chicken wings, bugs, spinach, pasta, waffles, tacos, shrimp cocktail, pumpkin pie, and of course, hot dogs.
0: Okay, I can get down with the tiramisu, waffles, and even like the fried
1: asparagus, but...
0: (laughs) Like bugs and mayo? I yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know which is worse. I'd probably rather eat bugs than a ton of mayo.
1: I think bugs are definitely worse. <laughs> but I do think I could be a pretty strong competitor with the tiramisu. I love tiramisu. Oh, same. So good. To this day, Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest remains the most important event in American competitive eating, and it comes with a $10,000 prize. Wow. That's a
0: really great prize. But how how did this competition like make any money, do you know? Like did they sell tickets to it or was there a fee that the the people joining had to pay?
1: Yeah. So as far as I know, they don't sell tickets, but they don't really have to because this competition is an iconic American event all by itself. So about 35,000 people attend each year in person and then ESPN broadcasts it to millions of viewers. So I think it's pretty lucrative, even just for the business it brings in by itself.
0: But like prior to it becoming so big, like it it was going on Mm -hmm. for a couple of years, right?
1: Yeah. No, it was going on for like a hundred years since 1916. It was just really small. Yeah.
0: It probably wasn't as lucrative.
1: Yeah, probably not. Nathan probably took a hit for a long time. A hundred (laughs) years. But it paid off. (laughs) Yeah. I also learned about maybe the most unique eating competition ever, the Zombie Pub Crawl brain-eating competition, where competitors eat tacos made with pig brains. Uh, I still think mayo is the worst <laughs> option here. <laughs> At least there's a variety of texture in the tacos, like some crunch, some softness. Mayo would just be so like monotonous and goopy. Yeah, although it probably would go down pretty easily. Probably, I know, it would just be like drinking something <laughs> really thick. Those who participate in these contests are sometimes called gurgitators, and they mean serious business. Competitive eating is not just about stuffing yourself to the absolute max. There's actually a bit of an art to it. Many eaters engage in regular training to maximize their intake, speed, and volume. This could include undergoing hypnosis, practicing their hand-eye coordination, ingesting large amounts of food while purposefully ignoring normal hunger and fullness cues, chugging high volumes of water to expand the stomach, and strengthening the jaw muscles by chewing on rubber balls. So it's basically the Olympics then. That's a lot lot of training. It's a lot of training. In its own special way, it kind of is like the Olympics. And it makes sense that competitors take their sport so seriously because not only are they competing for major cash prizes they're also competing for the elusive Mustard Yellow Belt. The Mustard Yellow Belt is awarded to the winner of the hot dog contest every year. Currently, it's held by the longtime top-ranking competitive eater in Major League Eating, Joey Chestnut. Joey Chestnut is a prolific eater. He holds world records for eating 17.5 pounds of cherry pie in eight minutes, 10 cups of ramen noodles, in one minute, 50 seconds, 82 tacos in eight minutes, 52 cheeseburgers in 10 minutes. This one makes me feel physically nauseous, but 18 pounds of shrimp cocktail (laughs) in eight minutes, 28 pounds of poutine in 10 minutes. That's like a toddler's worth of poutine. 47 grilled cheese sandwiches in 10 minutes, 141 hard boiled eggs in eight minutes, And 76 (laughs) hot dogs in 10 minutes. And he set that last one at Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest in 2021, which for the record works out to about 20,000 calories in 10 minutes. And the list goes on and on. He currently holds 55 world records and makes over 200,000 per year doing contests. Like, I wonder if he's chewing even at that point. Barely. It's just like a light chew and swallow. I actually mention it later, but I'll touch on it now. They okay. take like tiny little bites so they don't have to chew. Like as it goes in, they're like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <Wow>. <laughs> I, I honestly just like can't even There's imagine how
1: uncomfortable you would feel after
0: eating <laughs> like 18 pounds of shrimp <laughs> cocktail all in your stomach at once. Or yeah. the like the poutine. Like I don't even want to know it's what so the, heavy. the bathroom situation looks like after competition days like this. <laughs> After
1: 141 hard-boiled eggs. (laughs) So gross. (laughs) Any good sport has some healthy rivalry, and competitive eating is no exception. The biggest rivalry in competitive eating history and the subject of the documentary The Good, the Bad, and the Hungry is Kobayashi, a Japanese competitive eater, versus Joey Chestnut. Takiru Kobayashi was the undisputed eating champion until Joey Chestnut graced the scene in the early 2000s. Kobayashi had won six Nathan's Famous hot dog eating competitions in a row, and his very first year ever competing in 2001, he actually tripled the previous world record by eating 50 hot dogs in 10 minutes. All the other contestants at this time were eating like 15 to 20 hot dogs And this rookie comes in and just demolishes the competition by eating 50. Amazing. Amazing. After this performance, Kobayashi captivated American audiences. And he actually really helped to elevate the sport because he was intriguing. He didn't actually fit the picture of what people assumed a competitive eater would look like. So Kobayashi was only about 5'8". He weighed about 128 pounds or 58 kilograms at the time. And he was muscular and looked fit. And this wasn't what people expected from a guy who could eat 50 hot dogs in 10 minutes. He also treated competitive eating like a true sport. He regularly trained so that he could improve his skill, allegedly jogging for hours to make himself feel very hungry, and then distending his stomach by chugging gallons of water to stretch it out and get his stomach used to the sensation of stretching. Doesn't sound that safe. It is not safe. It is definitely not safe, and we do not recommend it. <laughs> when such a high volume of water is ingested very quickly, it can lead to something called hypervolemic hyponatremia, which is when the sodium concentration drops to dangerously low levels. It could also lead to something called water intoxication, which is a potentially fatal disturbance in electrolyte levels due to excessive water intake. So, not recommended. Kobayashi also regularly feasted on giant meals of low-fat, high-fiber foods like cabbage, which swell in the stomach when combined with water due to the fiber content, and actually stay in the stomach a little bit longer before breaking down, so it actually stretches out the stomach a little bit more. Kobayashi knew that both speed and stomach capacity are required to win a hot dog eating competition. So to maximize his speed... He would practice his signature technique over and over again. And his signature technique involves taking two hot dogs at once, removing them from the buns, breaking them in half. So you have like four little halves, shoving them in his mouth, two down each side, and then dipping the buns in hot water so that they go down easier. Hmm. Many competitive eaters also avoid having to chew. This is what I said earlier, by taking multiple quick small bites as the hot dog goes into their mouth. So that they can just swallow right away. Efficient. Joey Chestnut and his brother grew up watching Kobayashi on TV, and they thought he was pretty much unbeatable until they saw him lose a hot dog eating contest to a grizzly bear on an episode of Man vs. Beast. Like an actual bear. An actual bear, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You can watch it. It's on YouTube. Joey Chestnut was so inspired by Kobayashi that he decided to start training. So he started grilling hot dogs in his mom's kitchen and feasting. The first competition he ever won was his breakout performance at a deep fried asparagus eating competition in Stockton, California. And from that moment on, he knew he was destined to eat competitively. In 2005 and 2006, Joey finally came up against his idol and greatest rival, Kobayashi, in Nathan's famous hot dog eating competition, and he was the first person to ever give Kobayashi a serious run for his money, but Kobayashi was unbeatable. Until July 4th, 2007, when Joey Chestnut would finally take home the mustard yellow belt by beating Kobayashi with a record-breaking 60 hot dogs. Unfortunately, this would be the last time that Kobayashi and Chestnut would come face-to-face. The major league eating contracts forbade Kobayashi from competing in non-MLE events, including those in his home country of Japan. Kobayashi felt that this restricted his freedom to compete, and the contract disputes ultimately led him to sever ties with the organization. In retaliation, the league banned him from competing in MLE competitions altogether including the 2010 Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Kobayashi showed up anyways, and he rushed the stage in protest, and he ended up being arrested and charged with trespassing and resisting arrest. He spent one night in jail and told the New York Post that the food wasn't great, and he'd been given a peanut butter and jam sandwich, but what he really wanted was hot dogs.
0: Great statement. I can't believe they arrested him. I feel like from the sounds of it, it sound like he kind of was the hot dog eating contest for like a long period of time. Yeah. I don't know. I like I hope people were like outraged by that. That does seem ridiculous and like I understand contracts and
1: stuff like that, especially like like sporting contracts, but that's yeah. That's nuts. It's pretty intense. And you're right. He helped elevate the sport in America and kind of made it what it was. Mm -hmm. You can actually watch the video of his arrest on YouTube, and it does sound like the crowd is kind of on Kobayashi's side. Now, despite all the drama and prize money and training that goes into these food competitions, I can't help, this is my opinion, I can't help but think that it's all a little bit silly. And it makes you think, is this even really a sport? Like, it's definitely a competition, Mm -hmm. but is it a sport? Do you have any thoughts, Becca? I don't know. I
0: figure if uh, something like golf is a sport, I don't see why not. Um, <laughs> I hope nobody gets offended by that comment. Um, Jeff is not going to like but, that. But <laughs> uh, I, I think even chess is considered a sport technically. Mm-hmm. So I think the element of competition does make it a sport if it's like organized. And I can see how these like eating competitions would get incredibly competitive if it is something that you you train for and if you have that you have fans and if it's something that you're known for.
1: Yeah, and there is no doubt that speed eaters take eating very seriously and Mm -hmm. it is competitive. It's very competitive. But there are people who refute the idea that competitive eating is a sport, saying that they consider it more of a spectacle, a novelty, or a publicity stunt. Hmm. Some other reasons that you might not consider it a sport is because eating is a normal essential activity that people do every single day. It's a basic human need and wouldn't be considered an athletic skill like running, jumping, or swimming. And I thought about that for a long time. I was like, okay, yeah, it's really not a skill you have to eat. It would be like equivalent to competitive breathing. We've got to do it. But we also have to walk. And walking is uh, yeah a sport. Competitive walking's a sport. I was thinking that earlier yeah. too. I don't know. There's a lot of room for debate here, but I think it is officially classified as a sport. I kind of agree with that. Yeah. It's definitely a competition. That's... Without a doubt, it is a competition. Mm-hmm. And what makes a competition a sport? Poker is a sport, Why I don't we just look up so the definition a sport. of
0: sport? I think that this is a good okay. time to do that. Okay, I'm doing it. Okay, so it's an activity involving physical exertion and skill Check. in which an Check. individual or team competes yeah. against others for entertainment.
1: Then it's a sport by definition. Technically, yeah. Okay, very good. Yeah, there's no doubt that speed eaters are skilled in their own ways, and competitive. So sport or not, competitive eating is dangerous. One study entitled Competitive Speed Eating, Truth and Consequences conducted a controlled trial on a speed eater and an average eater. The two subjects were males of about the same age, and the study compared how their bodies reacted to large amounts of hot dogs. And they actually studied the rate of gastric emptying using fluoroscopy, and they measured changes in abdominal girth as an indication of stomach expansion. The study found that the competitive eater was able to eat significantly more hot dogs than the control subject without feeling fullness or even discomfort after 36 hot dogs while the control subject experienced strong feelings of fullness after only seven hot dogs, saying that he felt like he'd be sick if he had another bite. What's interesting is that the study noted that the rate of gastric emptying was the same, so it's not like the competitive eater's food was moving on more quickly to make more space. In fact, neither subject had any significant movement of the food from the stomach to the small intestine during the time of the study. So it seems like the competitive eater had actually trained the ability to distend his stomach further without feeling the usual cues of fullness, discomfort, and nausea. Wow. So when the researchers spoke with the competitive eater afterwards, he shared that he trained himself by forcing himself to consume larger and larger amounts of food despite the sensation of fullness to develop his stomach's capacity to stretch. By doing this, he was slowly able to overcome the usual checks and balances associated with eating by pushing himself to consume more and more without acknowledging his fullness cues. As you can imagine, this practice does not come without serious consequences. The speed eater shared that he no longer experienced the sensation of fullness and satiety that normally occurs at the end of a meal. He never really feels satisfied. And he has to constantly be aware of how much he has eaten in order to know when to stop. When questioned on the subject, he shared that being a competitive eater left him incapable of experiencing the usual sensation of fullness and satiety after meals. This clearly isn't a healthy way to eat. Our hunger and fullness cues are there for a reason, to help our body regulate our energy intake, and overriding them can lead to long-term consequences. The researchers for this study suggest that competitive eaters may be at risk for developing chronic diseases associated with excess consumption. There's also the risk that a stomach that is used to being distended will eventually lose its tone and become incapable of peristalsis or gastric emptying. Hmm. The study ends with a call to action for major league eating to investigate the long-term risks of competitive eating. But as far as I could find, I don't think this has been done yet shocker, but i mean why
0: would they investigate that claim? i feel like simply knowing mm-hmm. the dangers of overconsuming in a competitive environment like this would like open the floodgates
1: to lawsuits. Wait, have there have there been any lawsuits? No, no lawsuits against major league eating. The closest was Kobayashi's dramatic contract negotiations, but i wouldn't be surprised if we see one someday because Beyond the theoretical health concerns, there are plenty of documented deaths related to competitive eating competitions. Mm, mm -hmm. All of the deaths fall into two main categories, the most common cause of death being from choking and the second being death from heart attack. Oh, Oh, no. I know. It gets sad. Okay. So let's start with choking. On Wikipedia, there are eight choking deaths listed since 2012 from eating competitions Choking can easily occur when someone is eating too fast and not properly chewing, both of which are happening in eating competitions. Choking occurs when an object partially or completely obstructs the passage of air between the upper airway and the trachea. And if the foreign body can't be removed, the lack of oxygen caused by choking can result in brain damage or death in four to six minutes.
0: Okay, but you'd think that they would be required to have paramedics at these things, or at least somebody who's trained in, in CPR, if they know that this is a risk.
1: Definitely. And they typically do, but I think sometimes they can't properly clear the airway in time. Okay. Or in the case of this next one, it wasn't a major league eating event. So I think there's, you know, eating competitions are, can happen informally too, and they're still very dangerous. Right. So this first one involves Caitlin Nelson, a 20-year-old college student studying social work, and she was also the vice president of the school's Kappa Delta sorority. She was participating in a pancake eating contest on campus at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut. Witnesses noticed that she started choking after her fourth or fifth pancake, and a nursing student in the audience quickly jumped into action and began administering CPR. Unfortunately, responding officers were unable to clear her airway and she passed away. No, it's devastating. I know. It was, you know, something for a good cause, for charity, just it probably a fun event with all sorts of students. And um, I think that's like, because there's almost something about a food competition that's like kind of humorous or like light, like a pancake eating competition doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like something that could be so dangerous, but it is. If you're Mm -hmm. like, pancakes are thick and dense and cakey. And if you're trying to eat them very quickly, that's very dangerous. Yeah. You (sighs) need a lot of moisture with pancakes. Definitely. And again, that wasn't at a major league eating event. But I have another one for you. And this one makes my skin crawl. In October 2012, the Ben Siegel Reptile Store in Deerfield Beach, Florida held a Midnight Madness contest in which nearly 30 contestants had to eat as many roaches and worms mm. as they could within four minutes without vomiting. What a great competition.
0: Have we learned nothing from our tapeworm episode? I know.
1: <laughs> I know. The prize on the line was a female ivory ball python. Not worth it. How much is a python? Surprisingly, ivory ball pythons are fairly priced between $150 and $260. Oh, yeah, not worth it. Not worth it. Definitely not worth it. 32-year-old West Palm resident Edward Archibald was going to win the snake for his snake-enthusiast friend. So nice of him. So Archibald, described by the store owner as a wild and colorful man, would wind up winning the contest, but before he could even claim the snake as his reward, he started throwing up. He was rushed to the hospital where he died and an autopsy later revealed that he died from choking. Ah, that's so sad. It's so sad and just so, such an unfortunate way to go. And like, sorry, this might be too visual, but like imagine that autopsy is just worms and roaches. Yeah. I'm sure if you're performing autopsies, you're You've seen to worse. seeing a lot worse. Another gentleman, 64-year-old Bruce Holland, collapsed while taking part in a chili pie eating contest at a pub in Queensland, Australia. And died shortly after in hospital. Just before he lost consciousness, his final words were, damn, that chili pie is hot. He had only had a couple mouthfuls of pie at the time, and other contestants said that their pie wasn't particularly hot. So it is possible that it was just poor timing or poor luck. Mm. However, a heavy meal can actually increase the risk of a heart attack in those who have an underlying heart condition or are already living with heart disease. So research has found a fourfold increase in the heart attack risk in the two hours after eating a big meal. So as the stomach expands, blood shifts towards your digestive system, which shunts blood away from your heart. If you have a pre-existing heart condition, this could possibly increase your risk of having a heart attack. But that doesn't mean most of us need to worry about eating heavy meals on a regular basis. But I do think it's another you know, good reason that you should probably avoid eating competitions. Oof. No kidding. So finally, I find it interesting to think about how competitive eating could impact your relationship with food. We already know that it very likely destroys your connection with normal hunger and fullness cues. But there aren't any long-term studies on the effects of eating this way. Some competitors have confessed to using laxatives or other purging methods during training or after a competition so in a way, one could easily argue that the sport of competitive eating is just competitive binge eating or competitive eating disorder behaviors in a way. And it could be considered a very serious condition. Okay, I have been wondering
0: that. I've been thinking that. I would be interested to know like, how many of these competitors start with or develop Mm -hmm. disordered eating patterns throughout this process. Because you really could consider like the preparation required for the competitions, especially if it involves like laxatives and things like that, as well as the competitions themselves to really, really enforce that behavior.
1: I know. And in a way, the competitions actually reward Mm -hmm. it. And it does seem like I don't want to I don't want to make this like broad statement about how this could be eating disorder behaviors because some competitors do seem to maintain a healthy lifestyle while training. But it really makes me wonder what happens when they stop competing and as they Mm -hmm. age. I can imagine it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, for them to rebuild a normal relationship with food. Even thinking about like a regular competitive athlete, let's say a hockey player, transitioning from being an athlete to not being Mm -hmm. an athlete – That's usually accompanied with changes in body composition and a bit of an adjustment period with regards to food and appetite. I can't imagine how much more difficult that transition would be if eating actually was your sport.
0: Yeah. And if your hunger and fullness cues are out of whack, like I wonder how long it takes to get those back, if you even get those back, if you've kind of been like abusing them for a long period of time.
1: A long time. Yeah a long time and also stretching out the muscles of your stomach. I wonder that too, because it's absolutely possible to recover from binge eating and reconnect with your hunger cues. But this is a different level of high volume eating. Yeah, Like I said earlier, I don't want to paint the picture that all competitors have a challenging relationship with food because we don't actually know that it hasn't been studied as far as I could tell. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there are people who have found a way to compete without the psychological stress that an eating disorder would have, right? So I did read one account of a 48-year-old woman named Juliette Lee. She's a small business owner, mother of two, and she shared that eating competitions were actually cathartic for her and had helped free her from her body image issues. So growing up, Lee was always told that she needed to curb her appetite to appear more ladylike, which led to longstanding body image issues. And she did say that competing in a sport where a big appetite is an advantage made her feel empowered and proud of herself. So there is another side of the story, but I do think there are better coping mechanisms out there that carry less risks. Yeah. I mean, interesting take, whatever does it for you, I guess. Yeah. To wrap it up, though, we do not recommend participating in eating competitions for a variety of reasons. And if you do feel drawn to competitive eating, it might be a good idea to really reflect on why you're drawn to competitive eating. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's the story. Wow. Really interesting story and like an area that I
0: did not know much about. So great job, Mm -hmm. Sarah. But I really did think that somebody was going to get murdered in that story. (laughs) Fortunately, no murder. Fortunately, yes. Yeah. So like a few years ago, I actually watched this episode of CSI where a man died after an eating competition that sounded very similar to the hot dog competition. I'm, I'm pretty sure... The prize was actually 10 grand, which I think is what you said that Must the prize be was. By. I think it was. But I believe he was being extorted into the competitions by his like brother-in-law or something. Obviously not a true story, but I just, I don't know. I found, found it really interesting. I barely ever remember watching anything on TV, but this story like really stuck with me. But in the story, I believe the man lived with Prader-Willi syndrome, which kind of impacted his hunger cues, allowing
1: him to like eat beyond that fullness. That's so interesting. And that would be, while it's a very, very difficult condition to live with Prader-Willi syndrome, it would kind of be an advantage in these competitions that you have that like insatiable hunger drive. Mm -hmm. And it kind of makes me wonder, like going back to the great eater of Kent, maybe he had something like that. Yeah. Because eating competitions weren't a thing when he was notorious. You know, what else would drive him to do something like that? Anyways, that would explain a lot. And now I really want to watch that episode. I might go into the CSI archives. I watched it probably 10 plus years ago, but I'm sure if you looked it up,
0: (laughs) you could find it. (laughs) Definitely. Wow. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unsavory. You can find all of the references and materials used to put this episode together in our show notes at unsavorypodcast.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends. This is the best way that you can support us for free. If you'd like to donate to our podcast, you can sign up as a donor through our Patreon link in our bio. For more information, follow us on Instagram at unsavorypodcasts. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at unsavorypod at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Jeff Devine. Learn more at Jeff Devine Sound on Instagram.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? The cat